You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I remember I was riding the bus one time, and when I got on and sat down, there was a sign above the bus driver's head that said things like, I will not punch, I will not cuss, I will not kick. It was like a placard with a list of rules. Uh, And so it said things like that, I will not bite, I will not punch, I will not kick. But then it said under it, because I'm the bus driver. And then as if to drive it home, it said, because I'm the bus driver, I'm the bus driver. And when you read it, you realize it's a joke. But it's a joke that plays off a principle we all understand. That this identity of bus driver carries with it certain activities, the least of which is to not bite people on the bus, right? But that identity carries with it certain activities. We all understand that. Uh, We've all been at the grocery store. I was just there yesterday, and you've seen a little kid ask for something or demand some candy and not get it. And when the tragedy dawns on them that they will have to go without, they access their emotional resources and what do they do? But I want it, I want it. I remember watching a kid just drop, his knees gave out and his mom was just holding him as he twisted around her in agony like, my God, you know, just completely come unglued. And if they're a little enough kid, you feel compassion for them because you realize, You haven't learned yet that life is so hard. Sorry, kid. Welcome to this world. And uh, you have compassion because you go, you're a child. And so all you have is a childish way to respond. But I always laugh in that moment because it'd be weird for me to think if I did that. I want a Snickers and grabbed on his arm. I want it. Right? Like you would turn away in disgust or you would begin filming. Right? And... uh, why? Because it suddenly would stand out as, as odd. You're mature. You're a grown man. And the thought is, man, you've had enough life and you have enough resources available to you that you should act in a different way. You're a grown man, so act grown, right? That that identity should change your activity. I remember as a kid once reading a book about superheroes, this comic book, and it was about superheroes who had powers far beyond those of mortal men, but they didn't act heroic. They didn't help people. They were selfish. They just did what was good for them. And I remember being really disturbed by that because it was meant to be disturbing because Spider-Man taught all of us that with great power comes great responsibility. And here were people that had been given power, but weren't acting in a responsible way with it. And it's it's an unsettling thing. That if you have heroic power, you should act in a heroic way. And I remember listening to an interview once where people were like, man, where did Stan Lee get that line? What a genius. And I'm like, man, he got it from Jesus. Because Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much is required. And in Jesus, the giving comes first. But then that giving should change things and change how we act. Now, why am I saying all this? For this reason, we've been in this book of James, and this is entirely how James argues. I just gave it to you. James always argues from being to doing, from identity to activity, from essence 
to action from the inside out. His brother Jesus said it this way. If you make the tree good, the fruit will be good. That God wants to change us on the inside. And when God does that, there should be a natural change on the outside. That when we receive the grace of God and become children of God, we should live gracious lives that reflect the fact that we know God. Just incidentally, this is one of the challenging things uh, with the atheistic position to provide a basis for morality. The atheist would say that we are ultimately an accident or a surprise and we are nothing more than animals. But then when you say, but we should live at a higher morality of love and patience and kindness, those those don't coincide. That doesn't mean an atheist can't be moral, but it means atheism doesn't provide a good base for why we should be gentle and kind to people. Christianity does. You're made in the image of God and so are they. And so if God has touched your life, it should change the way you live, right? That bus drivers should act like bus drivers. Grown people should act grown. Superheroes should act heroic. Christians should look like Christ. Because when the grace of God touches me on the inside, this changes everything. And this is how James is going to argue the whole book. He's not going to say, just do it. Do what you're supposed to do. He never does that. He says, rejoice in trials. Why, James? Because you know the sovereign Lord who runs the universe is your dad, and he's going to take care of you. Read the word of God and obey it. Why, James? Because this word brought you to life because it taught you about Jesus, and it's planted in you. God's given you a new power source from which to live a more powerful life. He never starts with activity. He starts with theology and identity. You've been given a new life, and that produces a new lifestyle. James is just calling in the whole book for consistency, that the outside should match the in. He calls for integrity. Integrity comes from the word integer. It means, one, that you're the same on the inside and out. You don't say you believe this way, but then act that way, that these things match. The inside and outside coincide. You have integrity, consistency. You're one. This is how James argues. Do you get it? So last week, he said, walk according to the word of God. Why? Because the word has been planted in you, and it's changed you. The grace came first. And then he's going to give you an example of how this works. And he started in verse 26 talking about worthless religion, right? That's where he said, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, deceives his heart, and that religion is worthless. What's he saying there? He's saying if God has touched your heart, it should change your mouth. If God has changed your heart, it should impact how you talk. He's just saying what Jesus said. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. When what you say is really just coming out of here. So if God has touched this, it should impact the way you talk here. Right? You see? James just says it in a lot meaner way. James will say that later. He says a fresh spring doesn't pour forth salt water. He said if God has made your heart a fresh spring, you shouldn't be salty. Right? That you should be kind with people. Right? It should, your conversion should impact your conversation. Right? How do you know you have the real disease? We see the symptoms. We see it, and we know the disease is there. Does that make sense? So worthwhile religion, verse 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says, when you understand what God did by sending Jesus to visit you when you were needy, and that that 
Jesus pulled you out of the mess you were in, when that dawns on you, then you will visit those who are in need. You'll just naturally do the same thing. And you won't want to jump in that mess of a pool that you were once stuck in. That when you understand he came to you and purified you, you're going to go to them and you're going to live pure. It's just a matching of the inside to the out. That's how it works. And an interesting side note here is he talks about the outworking of religion. He's about to get into the specifics. Here he kind of gives you two directions that really apply to two different kinds of people in the room. There's some people when you ask them, what is faith in God? Should it look like in our life? We naturally talk about social justice, right? It should look about alleviating the suffering of the poor. It should look about creating equity for all. It should look about caring for those in need. It should look like an external social justice. Other people, when they talk about God touching their heart, it becomes personal morality. It should affect the way you talk. It should affect what you let your eyes see on a screen. It should affect your bedroom, that it should affect a personal morality. And some people, typically, uh, there are people that maybe love this section that aren't interested in that one, or people that love this and kind of don't like that one. And there's a debate sometimes in religion about what is the true expression of our faith. Is it in social justice or personal holiness? Which is it? Which is true? And people battle about it, right? The great thing about James is James says, yes. (laughs) He says, pure religion is what? To visit the orphan and widow in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That when God touches your life, it should change the way you treat those who are hurting around you. And it should change the way you conduct your life personally when no one else is around and no one's looking. It should affect you in both ways. So just let me give you a heads up at this church. Wherever you fall in the spectrum sort of politically or philosophically, he will challenge us in both of these ways. So everybody should at times in these sermons, no matter what you're leaning, feel very encouraged. And everybody at different times should feel very challenged. If only one side feels encouraged and one side feels challenged, we're not doing it right. Everyone should be equally encouraged and equally offended if we're doing this right. Does that make sense? So there you are. Welcome to church. So that's James, right? Letting you know he's saying it, okay? Because God has changed us, it changes how we treat people. Now today, he's going to take it another layer deep and talk about it in a very specific way. And uh, here's the crazy thing. He's going to talk about how it plays out right now in this room. So this isn't one of those sermons that hypothetically tomorrow when you're out there somewhere, conviction may come and remember this first. This is like, it's about to go down right now. So if you're like, is it hot in here? Yeah, it is. And uh, okay, verse one of chapter two, he says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, you can't hold both. You can't hold Jesus and hold partiality. Can't hold both. Inconsistent, duplicitous. We're looking for integrity, right? So you can't hold Jesus and hold partiality. So million dollar question is, what does partiality mean? Well, the NIV translates it favoritism. It's a good word. Don't show favoritism. Here's the great thing. In Greek, the language James wrote it in is a combination of two words, receive and face, which as far as we know, James made up. This doesn't really show up anywhere else. He made up a word. Don't face receive. Don't receive somebody's face. What does that mean? What he means is, I'm not going to make distinctions and value judgments based on your external appearance. That I won't walk into a room and look at your externals and determine how valuable or worthy you are based on the look of your face and either receive your face and not receive their face. He says, don't do that. You can't act like that. He says, you can't do it. And it's interesting, James is about to apply it to socioeconomic status, but that word is in the plural. 
partialities, favoritisms, face receivings. He says any kind of stuff like that. He says, we don't do that here. That's not how we do it. And we all do it in different ways, right? We can discriminate based on how people dress. We can discriminate on ethnicity. We can discriminate uh, on political uh, affiliations, I've heard, is an issue in this town. I don't know. (laughs) Regionally, I'm from this part of the country. You're from that part. Age, well, I'm old. They're young. These kids today, these old people. We can discriminate on all kinds of different things, how we look, how we dress, how we talk, where we're from. We can discriminate against each other. And James isn't saying we shouldn't see differences. He's saying, but you be careful about making value judgments on which face I'll receive and which one I won't based on externals. He says, we don't do that. And it's interesting, he says, you can't hold on to favoritism as you hold on to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's what's crazy is he says, you can't hold both. And then he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, which is pretty common. But then he calls him the Lord of glory, which the word Lord isn't even repeated. It's just he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory, which is weird. James never says that. Nobody ever says that. Why does he call him that? And it's part of James coming at us to get your inconsistency. Jesus is the glorious one. That's what he says. The glorious one came to you when you were a mess. You offered him nothing. You didn't add to his value. He wasn't like, you know what, I need to saddle up to that guy because he just got a promotion or I need to get around her because she can get me into some certain circles. You offered him nothing. He was already glorious, but he came to you. And so for the glorious one to come to you and then do you walk in the room and to segregate people out based on how glorious you think they are, that's weird. He came to you when you were dirty. Uh, And so you don't come into his house and do that. That's weird. You can't hold both. You don't hold partiality and hold the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do that. The glorious one came to you. So if you're a Christian and you judge people based on externals, stop it. That's the sermon for today, right? Now he's going to give us an example of a particular kind, right? In verse 2, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Now, we'll get into what's about to happen, but let me just uh, set the stage. He's talking about an assembly of believers. He's talking about a gathering of people. He's talking about this room right now, a collection of people. He says, okay, two people are about to walk in a room. So what happens when one is a man wearing a gold ring? Which this is just, if I can nerd out for a second, gold ring wearing in Greek is all one word. I don't know why, but I just think that's the funniest thing ever. If a gold ring wearing guy comes in, you're like, well, all right. And uh, then he's got fine clothes. The word fine clothes is literally just the word shiny. So a guy comes in, he's gold ring wearing and shiny. What's he doing there? Well, most of our clothes aren't just to cover our nakedness. I mean, functionally, yes. But they also project to people who we are. I got the right kind of shoes on to show I'm with it. I'm into what the kids are into today. Uh, I got this right jacket on to show you that I'm worthy of this promotion. We, we dress to signal who we are. Right? We sort of like that. And so this guy's got all this gold on to signal I'm, I'm somebody. It's not wrong to wear gold, but it's just a symbol of I've, I'm a success. Successful guy comes in. He's shiny. Uh, then guy two comes in, he's called a poor man. Poor is the word crouched over. It carries the idea of beggarly. And then it says, and he comes in and he's got shabby clothes on. It's the word filthy. It can mean mud. It's also used many times in Bible to talk about excrement. So this guy's not just dirty, he's dirty. And he comes in 
And so James set the stage. Two people walk into the Howard Theater. One's shiny and one's shabby. One's got it all put together. One can barely hold it together and it's coming apart. And then he talks about what's our response. He says, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So the implication is they're guests. And if someone has a lot of money, and that's the only thing you know about them is the externals, you go, oh, look at all that gold. Sit here in a good place. And you look at somebody else, smells bad as a mess. And you go, hey, you just, maybe you can be in the back. Maybe, I don't know. He says, if you make that decision, and incidentally, we do this, by the way. Not we, Passion City Church. Like, this is our stance. I mean, we as humanity does this. I read an article the other day in the news that was talking about how attractive people get what they want consistently. Like, there's hard data behind it that people who are viewed as more attractive tend to get their way more to a higher percentage. You know, they're just like, but I don't want to pay this ticket. Okay, thanks. You know, and just like, wow, okay. Uh, some of us don't know what that's like. Some of you are like, oh, y'all don't experience that? No, we don't. And so we do this as a society. That's a normal human response, okay? So I'm not shaming you, but when Jesus has touched your life, this changes. And when Jesus has touched our lives, we don't do that. Because if you do this, if you section them out, James says, and he asks it as a question, but it's not really a question. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? <laughs> You're like, what does that mean? Well, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourself? What he says is if you do that, you just drew a divide to the community. You just walked into the people of Jesus and you drew a hard line and put some on some side of the room and some on the other. You put the haves over here and the have-nots over there. You did that. You literally, the word is judged through. You took a judgment call and you cut it right through the community of faith. He says, but you put yourself in that judge's chair. You walked in and were like, pull up the throne. And you sat down and were like, you worthy, you unworthy. You stay, you go. You believe this, you hear. You believe that, you out. He said, if you do that, he said, you become a judge, but you're a judge with evil thoughts. Your sifting criteria is evil. So you put yourself in an authority when you start judging other people like this, but your whole criteria for your distinctions is not just off. This is James. He says it's evil. Why does he say that? He's going to give us a couple reasons. The rest of it just unpacks it. Three reasons. Number one comes in verse five. He says the problem is you're moving the opposite direction of God, which most people don't want to do. He says favoritism flows in the opposite direction of God. He said in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James points out God loves poor people. And you see all through the Bible, he says he chooses them. What does that mean? It means he deliberately moves towards them. He doesn't back away. He moves towards towards those who are hurting and associates with them. There are so many verses on that in the Bible. I don't even have time to get to them all. I'll just read one in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, the Lord, your God, is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes, but he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. He's the father to the fatherless. And James points that out, the fact that God is always moving towards the poor. Jesus had a deep regard for the poor. Now, 
does this mean that all poor people are good and all rich people are bad? No, the Bible's more nuanced than that. But often in the Bible, you see the people who are poor, and you see Jesus do it in his sermons. Sometimes he'll even say poor or poor in spirit. And he kind of, there's a significant overlap in those communities. They're saying people who often feel their neediness are most receptive to God. And so it's interesting, if you look at the history of Christianity, it's changed cultures often, but normally it's not from the top down, it's from the bottom up. Uh, It's normally not if we could just get the cool kids to convert. No, it's normally like uh, God begins to move among the down and out and the destitute, and they go, God will even forgive me, God will love me, nobody sees me, but God sees me, and you see it begins to change the culture from the bottom up. Because why? Because often they're the most receptive. And uh, you see that through history, and it says here that God, God moves towards them. Right, And so he's saying God is concerned about those who are hurting. And if you don't even want to get near him, you dishonored the poor man. You dishonored the man God likes. So you're going the opposite direction. That doesn't make any sense. So as Christians, when God has touched our life, we know Jesus came towards me when I was a mess. So I moved towards messy people. Now, that doesn't mean get in really unhealthy relationships. That doesn't mean enable drug addiction. This is where it gets real complicated. The end of the sermon is not, so give money to everybody on the street. No, that's not what I'm saying because it gets real complicated. But as believers, we have to say, if I'm coming into a hurting city, I got to come in and go, man, how do I help people who are hurting in a way that's not paternalistic and condescending? And I love that James doesn't say give money. This isn't really a talk about giving. He says visit the orphan and widow in their distress. How do I come and say, you're made in the image of God like me, and so you have dignity like me, even though you come from a different political background, different uh, uh, nationality, different social interests, even though we are as far apart as can be, you have dignity because you're in the image of God, and so do I. So so sit here next to me. I'm not going to put you at my feet. Sit right here next to me and talk to me. That's what he says to do. Does that make sense? Man, I'll tell you, when I first saw this, was um, I was a college kid, and uh, I got invited by a preacher to travel with him. We drove around Texas, we'd go to all these places, and he would always give me advice. He would just, uh, because I wanted to, he was mentoring me. And so it was like having a Yoda and shotgun. I got him driving around, and he would just say crazy things like, hey man, you ever speak somewhere? Never look at the check. Like, what? He said, sometimes you'll speak somewhere and they'll want to give you money. Don't look at the check. He said, because you don't want the money to affect how you minister to people. If they give you a lot, they give you little, they give you nothing. You don't want it to affect how you treat people. You treat people all the same. So if they hand you a check, throw it in your bag, never look at it until you leave. I'm like, okay, that's good. I like that. And I do stuff like that, right? And then he was like, hey, man, do whatever you want, but don't go to the swimming pool. He's like, what? We're speaking at a youth camp. And he was like, you're not their youth pastor. You're not their dad. You're a rando guy they brought to swim. So if you spend too much time at the swimming pool with the kids, you're going to freak people out. Don't go to the pool. And I was like, okay, all right, that makes sense. I like pools, but I get it. And on and on it would go. And then we walk into the lunchroom and he was like, do whatever you want. He said, but whenever I walk into the lunchroom, he said, I just pray, God, who do you want me to sit by? He said, and sometimes it's my friends, people I know. He said, but if I just did it myself, I walk in and I look for the leaders who are my age or the guy who brought me here to this camp who I want to make sure likes me, and, uh, and I go sit there. He said, but if I know if I walk up praying, God, what do you have for me today? He says, as often as not, I end up sitting in a really unexpected place. My eyes will just lock in on somebody, often somebody sitting by themselves. I'm like, that's cool, man. And I watched him do that. And the weird thing was about five years later, suddenly I was traveling and speaking. It, was, it wasn't something I expected, but I remember I was doing all that. 
throw the check in the bag, don't go near the pool. And I walk towards the lunchroom and I walk in like, Lord, who do you want me to sit by? And there was a kid sitting by himself. And I went and sat by him and was like, hey, man, how's it going? We began talking. And he was a kid that he just looked like one of these things is not like the other. Just the way he dressed. Like he's trying to s- signal with this clothing, I'm not engaging you people. And he's sitting by himself. But we just hung out and visited, talked. Not deeply spiritual. It wasn't like he was like, I do repent. And I was like, why should we not be baptized? You know, like it didn't, it didn't end totally resolved. But we had a good human connection. And I remember as we sat there and talked, we left. And a couple hours later, a lady came running up to me with tears streaming down her face. And she said, how did you know? I'm like, what do you mean, how did I know? She said, do you understand who you just sit by? Do you know what just happened to his family? Do you know what just happened in his life? She started telling me about some devastating things in his story. And she said, and the the pastor of this camp walks right in, right past all these other kids and sits right down by the kid we're the most concerned about. Why did you do that? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't know. The grace of God. And then the crazy thing I, I remember is how I met that pastor is because he came and sat by me once when I was sitting alone in the lunchroom. And I remembered, I was the weird kid. I was. And he sat by me and he loved me. And this is how it works. When grace touches me, grace received becomes grace extended. I move towards them. I want to move the same direction as God. I want to go where God is going, which incidentally, and this is a separate sermon, but this is why you go to church. Okay? If I can just preach this a little bit here, this is why you go. Because I talk to people all the time that are like, hey, man, church is just when two or three believers are together. My roommates are in my house. Church. We got church. I got a couple friends. We pray together. We hold each other accountable. Read a little Bible study. That's church, man. That's church. That's church. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So your church happens to look exactly like you socioeconomically. Same clothes, same outfits, same interests. So, so you're not kicking the poor guy out. You're making sure he can never find you. You've put it in your apartment or your dorm or your house where he doesn't even know what door to knock on. So call it special. James is going to call it something else. He's going to call it evil. So I'm not saying you can't have Christians you get around that encourage each other and love one another and support one another. I hope you do that. We call them fight clubs. You call it whatever you want. You get around with a group of people that will love you, pray with you, support you. And if you happen to like the same jackets and the same clothes, do that. It's great. It's normal. It makes sense. But then gather with us and be around people that are just like you and people who are not like you at all. And that's why God does this, right? That's what makes the church special. You get this at the Department of Motor Vehicles and among the people of Jesus. That's about it. But, but they're angrier there and there's not as much life change. Here will change your life, right? We got the word of God in this place. And it should put you around some people who aren't like you. It should put you around some people that that are different from you. I remember for me when I, I lived in the inner city of uh, Denver, I went to a church where there, there were three lead pastors, which I still don't even quite know how you do that, but they were all from different countries. And it was just the most diverse church ethnically I'd never been a part of. And it was right in the middle of the city. They had bought a, a grocery store that had been shut down because it got robbed so much. And so they just said, well, we'll take it. And the way they started their church was they started serving people in the neighborhood. And then they started this church. And it was a normal thing. I remember the first Sunday I sat down and the guy on my right had a suit on, like full-on suit like he was going to work. And this guy, you could smell the alcohol and the urine on him. And nobody was like, oh, gosh, looks like, you know, every, this was normal. 
And at the end of church, they're like, hey, today's church, we're going to go serve in this neighborhood. And everybody got up, this dude took his jacket off, and we went out and started serving in this neighborhood. And I'm like, this is what church is meant to be like. It's okay to be shiny, and it's all right if you're shabby. It's just we all sit together. Does that make sense? That's where this is going. So that's how Christ rolls, so that's how we roll. We speak to one another with grace. And if you don't do that, James is pretty much saying you're the antichrist. I mean, that's basically what he says. You're going the opposite direction of Jesus. Thanks, man. All right, so why do we do it then? Because we all do it. Why do we do it? And James is going to get underneath that. He's going to say, well, your favoritism shows a lack of faith. That's what it is. And he'll do it with three parallel questions. He says, aren't the rich ones the ones who oppress you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you've been called? Now, I don't want to get too far into what was happening in this moment. You remember when James wrote the letter, he said it was to the diaspora, to those who had been scattered. That religious persecution had sent them out, so they arrived in nations where they were destitute and they were oppressed. Some of it was probably because of their ethnic background. A lot of it was because of their spiritual background. And so some of this is James being very specific. It's the rich people in these nations that are oppressing you, which continues still to happen all around the world. But again, the Bible's more nuanced in saying all rich people are bad and all poor people are good. It doesn't say that. Joseph of Arimathea had money, had a... Uh, grave site in Jerusalem on the side of a hill, and he buried Jesus there. You can be rich and full of faith. You can be poor and full of bitterness and anger. You, you don't get into heaven by your socioeconomic status, be it good or bad. But he's looking at these people, and he's like, but look what you're doing. You're kissing up to the haves and dismissing the have-nots. You're walking in a room, and you're making value judgments based on faces, and you're moving towards some groups and away from others. He says, why are you doing that? The reason you're doing that is because you're hoping these people who have will elevate you. That's why you're doing it. You're moving towards people that you know are not honoring your God, are not concerned with you. They're not exhibiting love. They're oppressing you. They're not being gracious. They're exploiting you. They're not honoring God. They're dishonoring God. So why do you keep kissing up to them? Because they're shiny and you want some of that shine on you. And so often when we walk into our offices, or I've heard rumor of this in D.C., when we can walk around the city, we ask people, what do you do? And if what you do can elevate me, I'm moving towards you. If what you do doesn't elevate me, I'm getting away from you as fast as possible, right? And that's how we treat people. And Jesus says, not when I've touched your life. Because when I came to y'all, none of y'all were offering me something. Where I was like, well, that's compelling. I recruit you. He was like, no, not any of you were wise or strong or you were a mess and I loved you. And so when we walk in the room, there's going to be people in here who have a lot of money. There's people going to be here who have no money. There's some of you that are riding high now, and we're going to love you. And when you ride low, we're going to love you then too. And that's how this church works, right? And how are we going to do that? How do we keep from being kiss-ups like that? Is we trust God with our lives. That you go, I can treat them both the same because God determines my story, not these people. Do you see that? Uh, I remember when I was a kid going to this camp once where I didn't know anybody. And it was the funniest thing, man. Like as a middle school kid, everyone started kissing up and trying to impress these reggae kids. What was weird is they were white guys from the suburbs that were all like trying to talk like they were from Jamaica and wearing all the... It was, I don't know if you remember this scene. It happened for a while. Most of you weren't alive during it, I just realized. Anyway, there was a time back in America that was awkward. All these white kids were trying to act like they were Rastafarians. And... There were two of them that everyone was kissing up to and trying to get them to like them, trying to get their attention. In about three or four days of trying to get the attention of these two guys, I was like, these guys are being weird. And I don't know them. And in a year from now, I won't know them. And they won't know me. 
why am I expending so much energy to get them to like me? And I realized it's insecurity in me. And there was nothing wrong with these kids, good or bad, but I realized there's some insecurity in me that's driving me towards all this energy, and I don't need to do that. I just need to live my life. And that doesn't mean suddenly be mean to them, but it doesn't mean constantly try to pull from them. And some of us, the way we walk into the office is as a drain trying to pull from people. And we're meant to be a fountain. We have the grace of God. And we're a fountain that waters everybody. And that's what I love about Jesus. He will sit with the Pharisee who's wealthy on the roof of his house and talk to him about the wind blowing. And then he will sit by the woman at the well who's alone in the very next chapter. Jesus will sit with high and low and he treats him the same. And so do we, right? It's interesting in the Genesis, Lot is a compassionate figure. Lot cares a lot about money. And he moves closer and closer to some wicked people. He becomes a council of a wicked city. And you see he's constantly trying to impress them. And by the end of it, that trying to impress them gets him no respect. They mock him. They don't respect him because he's a kiss-up. And at the end of it, he loses everything, even his family. You see, Abraham won't do that. He won't kiss up to the kings in the region. He lives his life. He's friends with people who are very different from him. And the Bible makes that really clear. He's friends with people from a wide different uh, variety of nationalities and backgrounds. But he's following the Lord. And if that makes us one, great. If that puts us at crossroads, respect, but I'm walking this way. And you see at the end of it, all the people Lot was trying to impress don't care about him. But it's Abraham who stands in the King Valley among the kings of those nations on equal footing. That if I have faith in God, then I can walk with integrity. And that integrity will impress people. It'll impress people. I got to trust him. And the last reason why you don't do it is because lack of love insults the lawgiver. That's the last part. He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted as a transgressor. What he's saying there is the same thing Jesus said. What, what was the fulfillment of the law? And he said the fulfillment of the law is to love people as much as you love yourself. That was in Leviticus. He said if you do that, you've summed up the whole law. Because the law gets pretty granular. If a guy loses a donkey, go track the donkey down. It, it gets in the weeds a little bit. But Leviticus says, you know what? If you love people as much as you love yourself, you're fulfilling the whole law. And James saying here, if you're loving others the way you love yourself, you're doing it. He said, but if you blow that part off, it's like you blew off the whole law. And then he says in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Some people read that verse and go, that's why every sin is the same. Lying is the same as murdering. And you're like, what? No, it is way worse to murder somebody. So can we just be clear on that? Murder's worse. You can get forgiven for all of it because the grace of God runs that deep. But what he's saying here is there are people that are like, you know, I'm going to obey this law but not that one. I'm going to take what the Bible says about loving the poor and do that. But when God starts to get into my sexual ethic, no thanks. I refuse that God. Or I'll let God impact my screen time and what movies I'm allowed to watch. But I don't really care about suffering people in my city. Like the Bible says, no, you can't do that. If you pick and choose, it's like you broke all of it. And why does he say it that way? He says in verse 11, because he who said don't commit adultery also said, don't murder. That's what's interesting. He said, I don't care about breaking the law. He said, if you pick and choose like that, who you're offending is he who said. The problem is not breaking the law. The problem is insulting the lawgiver. It's like this. You've done this with your family. Uh, if my kid, my wife says, go clean your room. And she says, no, I'm not doing it you're in trouble in our house. 
And if you're going and judgment's coming on you and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I already finished my homework and brushed my teeth, so I'm good. We say, no, you're still in trouble because you yelled at your mother, the lawgiver. <laughs> you didn't just violate some list on some child law. You violated a person. She wants you to speak to her with honor. She wants you to obey. She wants you. So you violated her, not some law. You violated a person. And so when we decide, well, I'm going to like some people but not others. I'm going to love some but not others. God takes that personal. God says, but I like all of them. And I know that kid's winning right now. But he's got some hard times coming, and I want you to love him when it's hard. And I know this kid is a mess. But I want you to love him while he's a mess because I'm working with him. And I know he needs work, but I'm working on it. And so God says, I want you to love all of them. He says, and judgment's coming if you don't. That's why he's like, hey, man, if mercy has touched your heart, mercy's going to come out of your life. But if you are a merciless person and you're selfish, don't live under the delusion that the grace of God has touched your life. Because when grace touches down, it changes everything. Does that mean we're perfect? No. That's why James wrote the book. We're all works in progress. But we should see the symptoms if you got the disease. If God has touched our heart, we should see it in the way we treat people. You see that? And then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I love that. James is good at the confrontation sandwich. You know, whenever I tell you how to do that, you know, when you're confronting somebody, you're just like, man, you're, you're so great at this and that. And I love what you do here, but this thing over here, never do that again. All right, but you know what? But I believe in you. And, you know, like that's how you confront someone at work. Like, hey, man, love your enthusiasm. Love what you're doing. Never send me that email again, okay? Can I stress the word never? Never. But I really appreciate you. You're a valued member of this team, right? It's a confrontation sandwich, a little positive and some negative. James would be like, you beloved brothers, you're evil. You're the Antichrist, basically. But <laughs> mercy triumphs over judgment, man. God loves you. Best thing you can do is just be like, you got me, man. I am judgmental. But praise God, he didn't bring judgment down on me. He brought mercy. So let me not bring judgment down on this city. Let me bring mercy. Let me be, not bring judgment down on someone from a different ethnicity. Let me bring mercy. Let me seek to understand before I seek to be understood. Let me lean into a relationship with a question rather than an assumption. How many people need to hear that in society today? We look at the externals, make an assumption, make a judgment call, then attack you based on the assumptions about what we believe in you based on what you were wearing. That's why the world can't talk to each other anymore. We don't do that. world may do that. We don't. Jesus broke through all of our walls and loved us. And so we broke through all theirs. If they're from a different background and you don't understand them, if they're from a different political affiliation, uh-oh, that's where it's going to get real. And let me just surprise you. There's people here from all across the political spectrum in this room. I know some of us are like, what? Yes! And whichever side you land on, what do you want to happen to the other side? We need to cast them out into utter darkness with the gnashing of teeth. No, you want God to touch their heart and change their life, right? So you should be glad they're here, right? And the grace of God, he might put them sitting right next to you, right? And you're going to have to work it out. But we're not going to let politics rip apart this church. That's not how it's going to work, right? We don't judge through. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't disagree on ideas, but it means we respect people. 
And so let me just encourage you as we close, pray. I want to challenge you with three things. Pray for the people who aren't like you. Pray to understand. God, help me see what they're going through. Help me walk in their shoes a little bit. I don't know what would happen if that happened in my life. I don't know how I would respond with that set of factors. I don't know if I grew up in a neighborhood like that, how I would respond. I really don't know. Pray that God would give you understanding. And then proceed, move forward wisely into conversations with people not like you. I say wisely, like don't walk up to somebody who's out of their mind on drugs and can hurt you. Dr drugs really robs people of personality and interaction in ways that can be really difficult on the street. So I'm telling you, be smart. I'm just going to go out at 1 a.m. and see who I meet. Don't do that. But I want you to pray, hey, God, who's somebody that right now is coming to my heart that whenever I think of them, I'm just like, like a little bile comes up like that, yeah. That maybe I just need to sit down and go, hey, man, tell me your story. I remember the first job I ever had. It was at a church. I'm embarrassed to say this, but there was a couple people on our staff I just dismissed. Y'all don't get it. Y'all aren't with it. Y'all aren't whatever. And then I remember our pastor had us go around and share stories. And one of them talked about her childhood, and I was like, I thought I had a rough one. I have no idea how I would respond to that, and you're a hero. The fact that you're even sitting here is a miracle. And I talked to another one that just offhand mentioned a friend of hers who was hurting. So she was just, while she was telling the story, she said, so my husband and I were fasting and praying all night for them and this and that. And I was like, whoa, 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 you did What? And that was a normal rhythm in her life that I'll go all night praying for somebody who's hurting. And I'm like, I haven't prayed for someone other than myself for more than 30 seconds and I don't even know how long. And I realized I was trying to dismiss her and she was a giant in my midst. So just slow down and say, hey, help, Lord, give me a heart to understand. Give me the courage to proceed to intersect with some people not like me and then provide for them. There will be places where, you know, he's talking about the poor and the needy, where we need to step in. And as a city, if we exist in the city as the people of Jesus, and the city doesn't feel the effects of our existence, something's missing here. Now, let me encourage you just by way of how we're working here as a church. Are, are we everywhere we want to be with meeting the needs of the city? No. Are we everywhere we need to be in healing the wounds of the city? No. But we're trying, and we're learning, and we're 18 months in. And let me tell you the way we're doing it is we're trying to meet organizations in the city that are really doing a good job of serving people and really have the pipelines to, to provide real good for people. So we've linked up periodically with places like Central Union Mission, Little Lights, it's working with kids, some, it's an acronym so others might eat, CASA, several of our people are court-appointed special advocates. We work with various safe homes for people getting out of sex trafficking or, or out of prison. In 2018, we did above and beyond giving here and we gave away as a church $40,000 to organizations in the city, Central Union and Little Lights. In 2019, we gave away 60,000. And let me say this, by a certain way of talking about it, we didn't even really have that money to give, just if I can be honest with you. It was like, ooh, okay, right? So consistent with who we are in the city. And we're trusting God will pay the bills of the Howard. And God's taking care of us. We're going as a church, I feel real good about it. But we're trying as a church to give so that the city feels our presence. The block party's out there, so we meet each other, but so the city knows we're here for you, you know? We've already had multiple people sign up to be mentors for kids in the city through Little Lights. 
many of you gave books because uh, members of the city came to us and said, hey, there's a lot of illiterate kids that they just frankly need some books in their home. And so last summer, we, several of you gave, and we gave thousands of books, literally thousands of books away. And over the summer, 250 of you through Love DC offered 566 hours of service to the city. So being a part of this church, I want to let you know, we're trying to help us lean towards the hurting in the city. So if you're like, how do I do it? It's overwhelming. We'll keep coming back here. There's all kinds of people here that aren't like you. And uh, I hope everyone from every walk of life feels comfortable in this space. And let's journey together. And then we're going to reach out into the city and meet needs. But as it comes to you, I would just encourage you, start praying that now. God, who do I need to show mercy to rather than judgment? Because that's what you showed me. That's what he did for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what that means? We get used to that sentence. While we were sinners means while we were walking away from him, blowing him off, writing him off, he came towards us. And when we got stuck in our own bad choices and our bad decisions that were our fault, he didn't cancel us. He didn't write us off. He didn't dismiss us. He came and sat with us in the dirt and the mire. And he loved you right there. And he spoke tenderly to us. And he was kind and he was gentle with the hurting and he took whatever sacrifice he needed to take for our benefit. Live homeless, he lived homeless. Only on one pair of clothes, he only owned one pair of clothes. Die on a cross, I'm gonna do that. Buried in a tomb, I'm there. Rise from the dead, you got it because I'm gonna take all your tragedy and bury it in the dirt and then I'm gonna rise. And when you trust me, you rise. Your eternal identity's changed, child of God. And now your activity's changed. Roll with me towards the hurting in your office, towards that different person, towards what God is doing. Let's ride the wave he's creating, crashing onto the shores of Washington, D.C. that has already made a little bitty church into three gatherings that probably needs to figure out our space issues pretty quick. But let the mercy of God triumph over judgment in your heart. Before you do anything else today, let his grace touch you. And then through you, it'll touch others. Because when the grace of God touches you, it changes everything. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.